All right, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 4, please. Philippians chapter 4, verse 21 through 23 tonight. The message entitled, Paul's Love and Blessing. Paul the Apostle has um, lovingly declared to those at Philippi, as well as showing by his life, four things. First, for him to live was Christ, chapter 1, verse 21. Secondly, for him to think was after the mind of Christ, chapter 2, verse 5. Thirdly, for him, the goal was to know Christ, Philippians 3.10. And fourthly, for him to be strong was in Christ, Philippians 4.13. Good way to remember Philippians. Throughout the epistle, clearly Paul's love can be seen for the Philippians in the gospel in chapter 1. For Christ's example and those who follow that example in chapter 2. And for the righteousness of Christ, um, for the purposes of God in chapter 3. And for unity and financial commitment in chapter 4. All of this is motivated by love for no other reason. So Paul now comes to the end of the epistle with a closing greeting accompanied with a benediction. Let me read here. 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This closing um, greeting, accompanied with the benediction, is characterized by the following. First, we have the greeting from Paul and the brethren in verse 21. Second, we have the greeting from the brethren at Rome. And then thirdly, the benediction to the brethren at Philippi in 23. One each. We begin with the greeting from Paul and the brethren in verse 21. Notice um, the Apostle Paul declared that the, that the Philippians um, greet the believer for him. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Paul most likely um, is the one who wrote this uh, section these last three verses, um, as he has in his other epistles, we have seen a study in them. Uh, in First Corinthians sixteen twenty one, he says the salutation with my own hand. Paul's here. In uh, Galatians six eleven, see with what large letter I have written to you with my own hand. And and there one of the interpretations is that it was a large letter because of his eyesight. But most likely because the letter could have been so short, but they used that as a possible explanation. In Colossians 4.18 says, This salutation with my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you. Amen. Second Thessalonians 3.17, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. 
So up to that point, he had done so. And then in Romans 16.22, he says that Paul would usually dictate um, his letters, who was, um, that individual was called the Manuensis, because there in Romans 16.22, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And so most of the letters were dictated, and then he would pick up the pen at the end of times and um, finish it up. Now, notice Paul stated an imperative command here to the pastor or overseer when they would read the letter to the church that Epaphroditus would be carrying back to Rome. The word greet there comes from the word to unfold, the root. To unfold the arms implying welcoming, literally to embrace, a hug, modern vernacular. Um, it is a sign of affection and love, endearment. And the Greek here is the middle voice, which indicates that it's to be done by the one being addressed. It's just like if you're talking to your son or something, you know, give a hug to your wife for me. You know, he's not supposed to tell the neighbor to give her a hug for him, for me, but he's supposed to do it himself. And so the one reading, the one accepting, the ones in leadership, because these letters were sent to the church, not to individuals in the, uh, the church, except for we have Philemon and, you know, um, Jude that um, writes that. But notice that you don't hug strangers when you um, meet them. Nor do you bid goodbye to strangers. There has to be a common knowledge, some association. The imperative command is at the end of the letter expressing two things, their love for the Philippians and their longing to see them again. So whenever there's a relationship, an affection or loving relationship, there's always a longing. There's always an expression of love and gratitude, and, and that's the way it is. Paul indicated, notice the extent of the greeting is to every believer. There is always a potential danger to uh, be sectarian within the family of God. If maybe someone doesn't go to the same church or agree in all the same things and people just kind of isolate each other or something, that should never be. Um, as long as it doesn't touch on the atonement, um, then, you know, there's places we can vary. John um, saw a man casting out demons in Jesus' name, and he forbade him to do so. But Jesus says, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us, in Luke 9, 49 and 50. So we have to make a distinction between things that are vital to doctrine and things that are not. There is always the human weakness of partiality for persons, but it's not to be. And sometimes, as the scriptures declare, it's due to bitterness, wrath, anger, or clamor, or evil speaking one person with another, Ephesians 4.31, within the body of Christ. Sometimes it's due to race, culture, or social standings, as Colossians 3.11 says. But there's neither Greek nor Jew, Gentile, Scythian, Barbarian, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus, right? 
And so none of those things should differ or distinguish us or separate us because we're one in Christ. Apart from everything else we are, we're one in Christ. So we never allow the world or politics or those things to divide us as Christians because our loyalty is to Christ Jesus. We're citizens of heaven first, then of the United States, okay, or any other country, okay? The color of our skin, the place we were born at, or our political views mean absolutely nothing to our Christianity at all. We're all traced back to Adam and Eve, one race. Today, the politicians, the uh, educators, and everyone tries to divide you by all those classes to pitch you on their side to bring confusion and destruction. And it's working in the world. Also due to financial position, James 2, 4 through 9 speaks about the rich, how they favored the, uh, the rich and not the poor, and they looked down on the poor, and um, you have to be careful of all that. Now notice Paul stated the reason for the greeting is that they are saints in Christ. The word saint again identifies the believer with the mutual call of God, as you know, for salvation and sanctification. Being set apart, we're justified in Christ Jesus. We are saved, we're forgiven, we live a sanctified life, separate from the world. Light and darkness can occupy the same vessel. The word St. Hagios literally means holier or consecrated to be set apart. You get the word um, sanctified, uh, sanctification from it with the same root. And notice that it's in Christ, indicating the believer's justification by Christ, we were saved by grace through faith based on the atonement of Jesus Christ. There's not one of us that can merit salvation, earn salvation, or live up to the law. The law accuses us. We fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, Christ fulfilled the law, and he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. And so our justification is based upon what Jesus accomplished not what we can perform or do. Because sooner or later, we will fail. And probably sooner than later. Um, now, this does not mean that we don't greet non-believers. Otherwise, we would be like the Pharisees who love and greet only those who love and greet them. And then we would be exactly what Jesus says. What do you more do more than they? So we have to be careful of that. And that sometimes um, Christian churches or groups or whatever become kind of self-righteous like the Pharisees. And they just, you know, I don't, uh, I don't chew and I don't uh, drink and I don't go out with girls who do and stuff like that. You know what I mean? All the don'ts. And, and though Christianity, certainly we live differently and we live a sanctified life, but we don't believe that any of that is what makes us justified before God. It's just evidence that we know God and that He lives in us and we're trusting and depending on Him. And so that's important. Notice um, the second part of 21, the Apostle Paul communicated the greeting to the Philippians from his, um, uh, from his companions here. The brethren who are with me Greet you. So he gives his own and then those that are around him. Paul identified this group as brethren. 
We've gone through this word before, Adelphus. It literally means from the, the root word from the same womb. They had been born again from above. As they heard the gospel, they responded, they repented, they were forgiven, and they were born into the family of God. You cannot join the family of God. You must be born again into the family of God. You must uh, be poor in spirit and see your bankruptcy to deserve salvation and, and mourn over your sin, first against God, then against man. And as he does that, he'll forgive us and uh, set us in a life that's based upon what he can do through us. Now, the word is used nine times in the epistle. Brethren, brethren, brethren. Those who are in the family of God. The family love must be mutual, reciprocal, to be God's love. So it's not just one-sided. There is a mutual love for one another. There is the respecting and honoring and being there for one another. Uh, in the world, in our flesh, it's all one-sided. Uh, one always wants a little bigger piece of the pie or one, one's more than the other. And that's always the flesh. And so we're to walk in the Spirit to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, these were part of the church of God. They belonged to the general assembly and church of the firstborn registered in heaven, Hebrews twelve twenty three tells us, because they are have trusted Christ by faith. They were um, a habitation of God's spirit, the building, the temple, and people of God. As Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 and 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, the minute we're born again, now our body is that temple of God. Our body becomes uh, an instrument of God. It's no longer our own. We don't do with it as we please, but we realize and understand that, that he is the one that, that uh, is to be glorified through it. Notice their place of company is with Paul these individuals that he's speaking for. Timothy was certainly one of these uh, in the company of Paul um, because he's mentioned him in chapter 2, verse 20 through 21, that he had no one like-minded as Timothy, for all sought their own. And as we said, that's quite a statement in view of all the people that Paul knew and Paul mentioned in Scripture. And when it came to um, being ministry-minded, Timothy just excels tremendously in this area. The other was Epaphroditus, fellow worker, fellow soldier, their messenger, who ministered to Paul's need in chapter 2, verse 25. In fact, he came near death, and the um, Philippians were concerned and worried about him, and he was worried that they were worried about him, and Paul was glad that God was merciful, and he didn't die, and he was about to send them back with the letter, to console them and to comfort them. And so you see the mutual love as Epaphras is worried about them, they're worried about him, and Paul's worried about him, and now he's glad that they're going to be comforted by him going back. Uh, the Christian love, uh, very well demonstrated here in the letter. Now, I'm sure there were others that traveled with Epaphroditus that are not mentioned, but I'm sure he didn't travel alone. It was very dangerous to travel alone in those days. Even as it is today. I'm always amazed how many people just go here and there all on their own. They get on a plane, go here, go there, all on their own. Many of them are Christians and businessmen. You don't travel by yourself. It's, it's foolish to travel by yourself today. Okay? You need to use wisdom 
and uh, make sure you're accountable to a certain extent. You have to be careful of all the trappings of today. You know, distance and long absences at times uh, allow us to understand and appreciate the worth of people or an individual person. And it's been 10 years since the church was ordered here in Philippi, and Paul has been in, uh, in prison for a while, and um, he's writing this letter. And um, as you're talking with somebody or you're writing to someone, you come to the end or you're, if you, today we FaceTime. Um, I don't know why people don't call on the phone. I just FaceTime. I'd rather see a mug than just my ear. And, and you know, when it's someone that you haven't seen for a long time and you know you're not going to see them again, it's like you don't want to hang out. You say, okay, listen, okay. You know, you, the longing. And when you come to the end of a letter and you say, you know, I, I love you, I hope everything goes well with you, whatever, you know, it's that longing. And, and here again, uh, his affection for the Philippians as well as they for him. Uh, do you greet the saints and brethren in Calvary Chapel or do you just walk by silently when you come here on Thursdays or Tuesdays or Sundays? Do you, you know, uh, are you friendly? The proverb says that to have friends, you've got to show yourself friendly. Sometimes people will complain, whether it be in this church or another, say, well, they're not very friendly. Well, were you friendly? It's a two-way street. Uh, it's important. Do you just walk in and walk out? Uh, no one can know everybody, but everyone should be able to know a good number of people in the church to establish close relationships and friendships. Um, Acts 2.42 says, And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, koinonia, in the breaking of bread and in prayer, fellowship. That fellowship involves many different things. It's fellowship as you're ministering together, fellowship as you're sitting, eating together, fellowshipping as you are um, studying the Word of God together, fellowship as you go out together and have fun together. Koinonia is a very broad word. But you're spending time together, you get to know one another. And that's what you do when you get interested in a, uh, if you're a guy with a girl or a girl with a guy, you start spending time together and all kinds of different things. What are you doing? You're fellowshipping, right? And you're getting to know each other more and more from every angle, from every vantage point, And you're getting a good view of who that person really is, right? And that's what you do. But today our society indoctrinates us into... Being loners and not being with people in the Church of Jesus Christ has always been known for their fellowship. In fact, um, the early church, the church was really the family of many who were orphans and widows and um, just outcasts of their families because they were Jews and they became Christians um, or their families had been um, killed and whatever it may be. And such is the case in other parts of the world, still today. Do you greet the saints and the brethren at Calvary Chapel in a loving and affectionate way? Or are you just very somber, cold, and rigid? <laughs> now, we may be like that in the world, but once you come to Christ, God begins to deal with your heart. You loosen up a little more. But if you don't mingle with people if you don't spend that time in the fellowship then you kind of isolate yourself and you remain just the way you are now all of us have basically a personality you know and there's people that are real outgoing others that are not and so we're not saying to be phony but 
some people, you know, you ever you go up and try to hug them, and they're just like a board, you know. They don't like to be hugged. Now, I'm not going to hug that person again next time. I'm not going to force myself on them. They don't like it. You know what I mean? And some people, they, uh, they're obnoxious Christians because they force themselves on people. But what I'm saying is, do you express your love towards people in a decent and honorable way? Some Christians are so legalistic that they would tell you, even some pastors, that you should never hug the opposite sex. Because that might stumble somebody and it's just not right. Well, I think we all understand a hug and then there's a hug. Okay? And if it's a hug, then you should be rebuked. Okay? And so again, you have to be real careful. Um, there's some pastors that even teach, you know, if you're in a cafeteria and, or a room alone and a woman walks in, you get out of there. You don't. Well, we got the cooties or what? Use wisdom, common sense. But you have to be careful of legalism, you know? It's, it's Phariseeism. Um, you gotta be careful. Now, I'm not saying to make provisions for your flesh. You have to be careful of that also. But we've all been in the world. We're in the Lord now. We should very clearly understand what side of the fence we're on. And uh, I think that's important. The flesh is always there to corrupt the love of God. In many of Paul's letters, he commanded them to give each other a holy kiss. You realize that? You ever read that? Romans 16, 16, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Now, this was not a big wet kiss on the lips. This was an affectionate kiss on the cheek, on the just touched. A lot of South American countries do it, European, they do that. And it's not perverted or anything else. Now, as the time went on in the church, um, of course, it became abused. And so it ceased in that. But let me ask you a question. If we practice the holy kiss here, where would you have sat tonight? <laughs> if you're carnal and you're a man, you're looking for all the young chicks or, or whatever, right? It tells you where you're at, right? And so there's always a potential for our flesh to corrupt the things of God that really are valuable and essential for the body life. But, you know, it's like that old song in the world, it's a thin line between love and hate. <laughs> that if you're not careful, you can slip right into it. And so... Again, walking in the Spirit is the protection. Staying in the Word. First Thessalonians 4, 9 says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So because the Holy Spirit is in us, we know 
when we're loving in the love of God. And we know when we're loving in our own carnal flesh. We're the first to know. So this was the greeting from Paul and the brethren in the love of Christ, the greeting. Notice secondly in verse 22, the greeting from the brethren at Rome. The apostle Paul sent the believers at Philippi the personal greeting from the believers at Rome. Listen to his words. And the saints greet you. Paul indicated in part by the phrase, all the saints, those who were mentioned at the start of the epistle, if you remember chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. Those who had feared and stopped preaching the gospel and had become bolder to speak the word without fear in verse 14 because of Paul's chains. There were two groups. Some were preaching Christ from envy and strife, and some from goodwill, verse 15 said. Those who preached out of envy preached Christ for selfish ambitions, not sincerely, supposing and hoping to add affliction to Paul's chain, verse 16 said. Those who preached out of love did so knowing that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel. In verse 17, the perspective of Paul was seeing the good for the salvation of sinners. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 18, incredible. He says, to me it doesn't matter as long as Christ is preached. The reason the motive the person does it, God will deal with them. As long as Christ is preached, it doesn't really matter to me. Because Paul knew he was there by appointment. If we know that we're walking with God and we're aligned with God's will and we're doing what God wants to do, then it makes no difference what else anybody's doing or saying, right? It makes no difference whatsoever. Their greeting was due to being in the family of God. The church and Paul had a loving relationship indicated throughout the letter, evident by their love, financially, help, many other things. And in spite of all this, not one name is named. Not one. <laughs> Paul knew so many people. Now, whether because some of the problem they were having here in terms of this unity and all different things, and he just kind of just left it there. Many, many speculations. But, you know, you and I can write a letter and we can write different things. And then another one, which is very short, boom, boom, to the point. No big deal. And we know that it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But God knows why he did that. So a lot of the explanations about why he didn't do certain things, that's just what they are. They're speculations, and it's irrelevant to look at them. Now, notice Paul also indicated by all saints here, those in the congregation at Rome, okay? So those who were not preaching because of fear and then began to preach, 
and those who were preaching out of good motives and bad motives. But then also the, those in the congregations at Rome. In Roman, Romans chapter 16, from verse 2 to 16, he mentions 27 by name. 27 names. 24 are accompanied with brief commentaries. Two-thirds of the names are Greeks. Nine of the names are women. The married couple Priscilla and Aquila received the longest commendation from verse 3 down to the beginning of verse 5 there of Romans 16. He called Priscilla and Aquila his fellow workers, companions in work, referring to the ministry of the gospel evident by the phrase in Christ Jesus in verse 3. They were from Pontius, remember, on the south shore of the Black Sea and had been expelled from Rome in 49 A.D. by Claudius. And they met Paul at Corinth. And because they were of the same trade, tent makers, they hooked up together and worked together often and did ministry, Acts 18, 1 through 3, and in verse 20. They had a house church in Corinth, this couple, 1 Corinthians 16:19 They later went to Ephesus with Paul and stayed there Acts 18:18 18, 18, and 19 and they instructed Apollos in the way more perfectly in Acts 18:24 to 28 Then later they returned to Rome as evident of Paul sending them greetings here in this letter They then returned to Ephesus 2 Timothy 4.19 tells us. In Romans 16.4, they endangered their lives to protect Paul, Paul said. They risked the word there's to place under the, or lay down their own necks for the safety of Paul in Romans 4 there. Possibly at Ephesus in the riot over the goddess Diana, or maybe at Corinth. Remember, Paul was afraid and very afraid. He was brought before uh, Sosthenes. Um, uh, the elder brought him there before the magistrates. And a uh, very dangerous time. But without doubt, due to constant working together, there were many occasions that took place because Corinth was a very dangerous place. But again, certainly we know that they were there with him at Ephesus at the riot. Paul gave thanks to God, of course. And Paul stated that the churches of the Gentiles were also thankful to Achille and Priscilla due to the fact that Paul was able to extend the gospel and the ministry to them. And as I look back upon the years of ministry and, and how God saved us and how God began Bible studies and did different things and all the connections and all, all the sharing of ministry and all the things that have happened to people through the years. It's an amazing thing as you walk with the Lord 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And just, you know, you, you have the whole history behind you. And you can see and you can remember. And, and you see clearly things that took place. It's amazing. Paul sent greetings. The entire church meeting in the house of Achille and Priscilla. Um... At this point, uh, when he writes in Romans 16, 5. So these, this married couple were always in ministry. They were real close to Paul. 
they always opened their house and had a, a part of the church there because they didn't meet in buildings. And uh, the majority of times, she is mentioned first, most likely due to her prominence in ministry. But they are always mentioned together in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 is one of those places. She's never mentioned alone. And it's always important that husband and wife serve together. Sadly, too often, women are the ones who serve more than men. But husband and wife should serve together in ministry. It's very important for your children to see that. Now, Paul described all these individuals that he listed there, the 27 or so, in Romans as the following phrases. Listen. As those who labored much, my countrymen, fellow prisoners, noted among the apostles, in Christ before me, my beloved in the Lord, fellow workers in Christ, my beloved, approved, approved in Christ, labored in the Lord, who labored much in the Lord, chosen in the Lord. All the things that he named every one of them, the commentary. In other words, he had experience with all these individuals. He had spent time with them. They had conversed. They had sat down and ate together. They had traveled together. They had been in difficult situations. They cried together. They laughed together. That is family life. Not just a bunch of people in one building. Now, you cannot know everybody here. But you can know a good number of people through the years. Especially if you're here 4, 5, 10, 15, 20 years or so. And your children will grow up together. And your children will be affected. And you will be affected. And, and they'll be a great asset to, to the friendships that God gives to you. Now notice the Apostle Paul sent the believers at Philippi. The personal greeting from the believers who served Caesar. He says but especially those who are the, of Caesar's household. Paul mentions the next group with great emphasis by the word especially, chiefly or above all. This does not imply greater importance in that person or any person from another person. This indicates the great impact the gospel had made into the pagan house of Caesar in view of Paul's imprisonment. That's all it's saying. The household of Caesar were those who had accepted the gospel. The phrase household of Caesar were the imperial slaves who came into Nero's possession upon the death of their former master. Some believe that the house, the two households mentioned in, by Paul in the 16th chapter of Romans, um, the household of Aristobulus and the household of Narcissus were of this sort, who were now in, um, in Caesar's household here. This includes all ranks from the highest officials to the lowest freemen or slaves, some highly educated men, often having more ability than their lords in managing their estates and affairs, financial businesses. So these guys weren't just slaves that were just whipped and they did the gardening and pulled out the trash. They were poets. They were doctors. They were uh, philosophers. They were 
business people, they were educated. They sent the slaves to the top school so they can have their own physician, their own accountant, all these kind of things. So it's a lot different than what we are used to and what we are taught so often. Uh, and even what we're taught is so distorted today about slavery that it's not even funny. Um, again, part of the cultural warfare that goes on. How they came to Christ, we don't know. But certainly, uh, remember, Paul was in prison in his own hired house for two years, receiving all that came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him in Acts 28, 30, and 31. And so, what a... What an audience Paul had. He was chained to soldiers. Um, They were switched at certain hours. He got a new audience. Um, They couldn't go anywhere. Um, God used that. Paul also mentions the elite praetorium guard of Caesar that he had. they had heard that Paul had been in prison for the gospel. And without doubt, some had believed. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 13. So they are different from Caesar's household. Um, they would be, again, changed every six hours. And they would be handcuffed to Paul. Um, Acts 28, verse 20. Also, Paul in Ephesians six twenty mentions that. They would hear Paul preach, teach. Um, Some people would come, probably sick, and Paul would anoint them, lay their hands, and they would be healed right in front of this this, uh, praetorium guard. (laughs) What does he do with that? (laughs) Amazing. Questions would be asked of Paul, and and there's a soldier, and he's answering, giving theology. Yeah, God created this and that, and they're listening. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Many others also within the service of the empire for Philippi, perhaps, because Philippi was a Roman colony. And so they also got word of things that went on. Paul told Timothy he was bound in chains, but the word of God was not bound, Second Timothy 2.9. And certainly this was evidence of that as Paul was there for two years and He just shared the gospel and many, many came to Christ. Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another in John 13, 35. Satan's always there to have us not yield to God's love, to love ourselves more than others. I am my biggest problem and I am God's biggest problem. Not anybody else. Self is always the problem and the one that destroys the blessings of God. You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. Lose sight of yourself. Self. Pick up your cross and follow me. It's never my wife. It's never the husband. It's never the dog. It's always me. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to be teaching us as we go through it. It's always self that's the problem. As long as I'm living for self, I'm going to have more problems. And as long as I'm living for self and I don't deny self, I will never be able to yield to the Lord. Because I will always have excuses and reasons, justification why I don't do it because of all these morons around me. Right? It's kind of like you're driving, right? All the idiots come out when you're driving, right? See, we never realize that we're, we're at fault. That's the flesh. How many people have um, you come to know through the years since you've been a Christian? Do you know more people now as a Christian than you did in the world? Based on the years that you're in, you can, you're the only one that can do that math. You should be a lot friendlier now than you were in the world. <laughs> your, your circle should have expanded. Because when you're in the world, if you're a surfer, you just hang out with surfers, right? If you're a lowrider, you hang out with lowriders. And when you're a Christian, you hang out with everybody. Your circle just grows 100%. Every which way. In 10 to 20 years in the same church... One should be able to know at least three to six hundred people, depending on the size of the church, easily. Larger church, many, many more. First Corinthians twelve, twelve through fourteen says, For as the body is one and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. And have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member. But many. And the members care for one another. They're interdependent. They deem one another. They're interrelated. They affect one another. See if you go to the wall. And you're going to put a nail in the wall. And you hold that nail with your left hand. And you smack with your right hand with the hammer in your hand and you miss the nail and hit your finger let me tell you the rest of your body all comes together to grab that finger and do something about it get some relief on it the other hand doesn't say ah forget it it's okay you got me you don't need that one doesn't say that your body works in unison for the other parts of the body and so the same illustration with that in scripture Think of the number of Christians you know in the years you have walked with Jesus. Pastors, those in leadership, those who serve faithfully, those God has restored, having gone back into the world, and they're now back walking with God, and so many other combinations you can think of. Those that you know that have been faithful lighthouses, standing firm, steadfast. You knew them when they were young, now they're old. That's a rich history. First Timothy 4.12 says, Let 
no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believer in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. How interesting that even though you may have never met a brother or sister in Christ, when you do meet them, you greet them in the love of the Lord, knowing you are in the same family and serve the same Lord with a cordial hug. As you say, God bless you, brother. And you've never met them before because they were presented as a Christian. You're in the same family. Might be in the other side of the world. Romans um, 12.10 says, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. This was the greeting from the brethren at Rome. Notice here, third and last, comes the benediction to the believers at Philippi. In 23, the Apostle Paul commended the Philippians to God's inexhaustible resource, the grace. Grace be with you all. Paul pronounced grace to all the saints, unmerited favor, the standard Greek greeting with the idea of joy, favor, beauty. The Greeks used it to show favor to a friend out of purity of heart, apart from any reward. The New Testament uses it to express the unmerited favor of God for sinners, to save them, and for their entire life to be worked out. Grace in our context here is an expression of the unlimited resources that are available to the believer after salvation, to live a life of godliness, having um, received the divine nature and promises to escape the corruption in this world. Second Peter 2, 1, verse 2 through 4. Paul began his epistle with grace. He ends it with grace. The word grace is found only three times in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 7, and here in the fourth chapter, verse 23. But as he describes his life and his dealings, you realize that everything that he dealt with in these four chapters is sourced in the grace of God, the absolute grace of God. Some manuscripts that they believe are the better, but I don't believe they are, have with your spirit. Some of your footnotes may say that. The expression with your spirit is not in the Texas Receptus from Antioch, which the King James Version uses, but simply here, this just indicates the believer whose spirit is alive by regeneration, if you would accept that. It is uh, found in other epistles, that expression, Galatians 6.18, 2 Timothy 4.22, and Philemon 25. So there's nothing wrong with it, but we don't believe that it's here. 
But again, there's nothing unbiblical about it if you accepted it because it's just speaking about believer whose spirit is alive and regenerated. Um, the expression, be with all of you, indicates the same thing, literally. Either way, Paul's desire is that each of us not only start with the grace of God in salvation, but to continue and to finish in grace every day of our life. Paul revealed the grace of God sufficient for all things they were going through. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 12, for their concern about Paul, they were to draw from the grace of God. For the persecution they were going through, Philippians 1, 28. To be humble, Philippians 2, 3. To be gracious to Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.29, and to run the race, Philippians 3.14, and to reconcile Odia and Syntyche in Philippians 4.2. All grace. Notice the Apostle Paul declared, this grace is connected to our Lord Jesus Christ, there in verse 23. Paul writes the title Lord Curios, as we have stated before, refers to a person who is the possessor, the owner, and the controller of a thing or a person. The plural pronoun our identifies us as the possession of Jesus, the sovereign master that owns us. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. The scriptures declare in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. The title Curios is found 749 times in the New Testament. It is found 15 times in this letter. Paul then writes also the name Jesus. As we have also stated many times, identifying his humanity, he was a real man. God became flesh. The name means Yahweh is salvation, the Greek equivalent of Joshua, the Hebrew contraction of Yahweh Shua. The name Jesus is found 975 times in the New Testament, 22 times in this letter. Paul writes the second title, Christ, Christos, identifying Jesus as the anointed Messiah of God. The Messiah promised by God from Adam to Malachi, from Genesis 3.15 to Malachi chapter 4, and all throughout, all the way through it, you can find it. He's the red thread that runs through every book. This title is found 569 times in the New Testament. 38 times in this letter. Then notice Paul affirms and confirms the benediction, the word amen. At the beginning of a sentence, when it's placed there, it is affirming and confirming what has been stated. I'm sorry, at the end, it's to affirm and confirm. When you put it at the beginning, 
It's translated in the old King James, verily, verily, or the new King James, truly, truly. It's the word amen or amen. And there's only two words that are universal words in every language. They are pronounced the same, maybe with a little different accent. One is amen. The other one is hallelujah. Okay? The H really is silent. Hallelujah. Okay? But those two words are pronounced the same in every language. Everybody understands them. This is the word here at the end. When it's in front, it means a very important truth that's going to be stated. Pay attention. At the end, it says, so be it. Let it be done. And this is what Paul is indicating here. It would be like telling someone, may God bless you in every way, protect and guide you through life in this benediction that Paul has given to the Philippians. Grace and the believer are inseparable. We stand in grace. We are to know God is able to abound towards us in grace. We are to speak with grace. We are to be strong in grace. We are called to inherit grace as a married couple. We are to grow in grace. Grace can be misunderstood, the scriptures tell us. Grace can be abused. Grace can be frustrated or turned from, falling from grace. Grace can be ignored, falling short of its transforming work in our lives. Grace is described in many ways. Great, all-sufficient, and abundant. Glorious, rich, manifold, multicolored, <laughs> like a rainbow. The greatness and uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ is unmistakable through the scriptures. The epistle begins with him. It ends with him. Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of God in the last days because he's God's son. Hebrews 1, 2. God who at different times and in diverse manners spoken times past to the fathers has in these last days spoken unto us through his dear son. Jesus tasted death for every person. Hebrews 2, 9. Jesus our high priest in heaven. We are able to enter into the throne of grace in heaven to find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Jesus offered up himself for sins once and for all, in Hebrews 7, 27. Jesus is the subject of the volume of the Old Testament, Hebrews 10, 7, and 9. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, the example of suffering for us and sufficiency to have us endure and persevere the race, in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Jesus is the only way to the Father, John 14, 6. Jesus is the only name given among men whereby men must be saved, Acts 4, 12. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 15, 2, 5. If you look to the scriptures, he's all over the place. It's all about him. That's why Paul in Philippians 2, 9, 11 says, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
and bow and confess that Jesus Christ in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He alone is Lord of all. He alone is the Savior of the world. He alone can hear our prayers. He alone can forgive us of our sin. He alone can make us be pleasing to God. Wow. This was the benediction to the brethren at Philippi. Four little chapters. What an epistle. And so Paul's closing greeting accompanied with the benediction. The greeting from Paul and brethren, the greeting from the brethren at Rome, and the benediction to the brethren at Philippi. Father, we thank you for your grace, your loving goodness. We pray that you would continue to deal with our hearts. And we thank you for just this book. And we pray that, Lord, you would allow it to just uh, um, permeate in our minds and our hearts. We thank you for just the privilege of studying together and being able to have a place to meet. And your grace to just minister to us, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the internet and you don't know Jesus Christ, Christ, Jesus is the one who died for your sins. He's God who became man. He died in your place. He paid the, um, the payment to the Father for the sin that Adam brought upon us and the ones that we carry out. And it is His grace that makes us sons and daughters of God. And the Bible says that we must be born again and we'll never see the kingdom of God. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you can be saved by calling upon him right now as you've heard the word of God proclaimed because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer of repentance right where you sit right now. You can repeat it right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.